Hello and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Ellen Goldsmith, licensed acupuncturist, your host every second Monday of the month. Today, our guest is Peggy Orenstein, author of the New York Times bestseller, Girls and Sex, Navigating the Complicated New Landscape, published last year, which just came out in paperback. Her book offers a clear-eyed picture of the new sexual landscape girls are navigating and how they are negotiating it. Drawing on in-depth interviews with nearly 100 young women and a wide range of psychologists, academics, and experts, renowned journalist Peggy Ornstein goes where most others fear to tread, pulling back the curtain on the hidden truths, hard lessons, and important possibilities of girls' sex lives in the modern world. It has been hailed as a very important book for young women and women in the 21st century. Peggy Orenstein is the author of other best-selling books, Cinderella Ate My Daughter and Waiting for Daisy, as well as Flux, Women on Sex, Work, Kids, Love and Life in a Half-Changed World, and the classic Schoolgirls, Young Women, Self-Esteem, and the Confidence Gap. A contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine, as well as other major newspapers and magazines, she has contributed commentaries to NPR's All Things Considered and the PBS NewsHour. She's been a keynote speaker at numerous colleges and conferences, as well as a featured guest on major television news shows. Peggy Orenstein, welcome to Health Watch. Thank you for having me. So you say that girls today are living with unique contradictions, you said this in your book, as they make sexual choices uh, that actually put them between a, a rock and a hard place. We've moved forward in many ways, but in some ways you say not very, very far at all. Yeah, you know, I think that for me, one of the big takeaways from doing this work was that young women today feel entitled to engage in sexual behavior, but they don't necessarily feel entitled to enjoy it. So that's a big difference. You talk about this uh, kind of sexual justice or intimate justice. Intimate justice, yes. The whole book and the framework of um, really, you know, social justice framework and. Um, that phrase was coined by a psychologist named Sarah McLellan at the University of Michigan. And what it means is that sex has political implications as well as personal ones, just like, you know, who does the dishes in your home or, or who vacuums the rug. And it raises similar questions around um, economic disparity and equality and mental health and violence. And we have to ask who's entitled to engage in an experience who's entitled to enjoy it, who's the primary beneficiary, and how each partner defines good enough. And, you know, honestly, those are really tough questions for a lot of adult women's, women to grapple with and sometimes traumatic. But for me, when I was looking back and, and interviewing girls and thinking about their early sexual experience, I just didn't want those experiences to be something that they have to get over. Right. Yeah, but there's this, uh, you know, there's so much hypersexualization these days. You talk about this in your book as well. It's, it's ubiquitous that it becomes almost invisible. Yeah, and, you know, it's the, what had ha has happened is that there's been this, this conflation, this merging in girls' minds of kind of performing sexiness versus understanding their sexuality and feeling their bodies. And, um, you know, for, even, for instance, one young woman who... Um, showed me a picture of herself going out to a party, um, a college party, and she was wearing, you know, that kind of contemporary classic outfit of the little crop top, short shirt, short skirt, five-inch heels, you know, and, and she said, I never feel more liberated than when I'm wearing skimpy clothing. 
And I said, well, you know, that's really interesting. I'd like to talk more about that. And as we continued, she said that a year earlier she wouldn't have worn that outfit because she weighed 25 pounds more. And what she said was, you know, I wouldn't, I, I, some guy at the party might have um, called me the fat girl, and that would have been bad for my mental health. So, you know, leaving aside why, you know, a lot, there's a lot of things that that brings up, but, but you have to ask how liberating is it really when humiliation lurks right around the corner and, you know, who gets to decide and how and what does that mean um, about who gets to wear what and who gets to be sexual and who gets to be sexy and all of that. Yeah, you talked about in the beginning of your book, there was a young woman and a high school senior uh, in in the auditorium uh, reacting to her principal's uh, talking about their dress code, how they shouldn't dress certain ways. I wondered if you could just... Yes, the dress. (laughs) The infamous dress code. One of the biggest questions from both parents and girls. But yeah, you know, that was a really interesting scene because the the principal, and this was in a very progressive school district, um, was saying, you know, was going on and on about the girls' dress and how they shouldn't wear anything that their grandmothers, you know, wouldn't want to see them in. And um, that basically he was shaming the girls and... Um, blaming them for uh, basically saying that if, if they were harassed in the hallways that it was kind of their own fault and one of the girls stood up and she had learned in that very school district that you shouldn't let people say things like that about young women and she stood up and said you know um, told, said her name and said I you know I uh, what you're saying is slut shaming and it's wrong and boys need to be responsible for their own choices their own choices we're not responsible for what they say about our bodies and you know and on and on and, on. and he said um, yes you're absolutely right and girls don't dress like that <laughs> you know and she was just really outraged but at the same time you don't want to make and I think this a lot as a parent I'm the parent of a teenage daughter you don't want to turn self-objectification into a feminist act and so we have to be careful that you know what so this girl on another day was wearing you know a little kind of bustier thing or something to you know to school and suddenly she felt really good about herself really good in it and then she hit the hallway and guys started catcalling her and she started feeling like a thing you know and and thought oh no this is not good at all um and there's a way that when we push girls and imp- and start judging them all the time about dress and sexuality, that we force them into a place where they're rebelling by dressing that way, where they're ex- expressing feminism and sexuality by dressing that way. And we know there's reams of research, stacks of research on the impact of self-objectification on young women. And so I think part of the of the challenge, and it is a huge challenge, is not just to tell girls, you know, don't dress like that, but to engage them, and boys too, in a critique of a culture that wants them to dress like that and what the impact is on their mental health, on their psychological well-being, on their cognition, on their political activism. I mean, it's like across the board that self-objectification has a dampening impact on young women, and sometimes a dangerous one. Absolutely. I'm a mother of a teenage daughter as well, so I, I read this yeah. book with great interest. and. It's- and it was a yeah you brought up like you know it's tough yeah and i and when i talk to girls and 
they will, you know, will have this whole conversation. They'll say, well, what do we do? You know, what do we do about this? What do we dress? How do we dress? What do we buy? You know, like they want very specific things, girls, always. When, you know, when I talk to them, and I'll say, look, I wish I could give you an easy answer. But I think every woman, whether she is 15 or 65, wrestles with these issues. And we all have to find our way through in a way that you know, feels like we have integrity for ourselves, and everybody has to eventually find that way themselves. But I can give you this information, and it can help you see what your choices are, and then maybe you can make them more clearly. So, I mean, how can parents help their teens? It's, you know, it's, it says, you know, you use these two words, uh, they're gender words, the girls say, oh, it's awkward, and the boys say it's hilarious, you know, when they're uncomfortable. But, you know, if you know if, if this is a problem for teens and also grown women, yeah. and and you know grown women are kind of uncomfortable and it's awkward to talk to a teenager who doesn't want to hear anything about it um, when it comes to sex and right. you know that kind of thing. You know how can parents even break through their own issues to kind of to help their kids to talk about sex? That's what, you know yeah. it's a really good question. And ideally, you would have started when your child was was very small, right? Um, and if you're if you're stepping in at you know thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, it, it is a harder thing to do. Um, but you know, I think um, for I, one thing, I mean, honestly, I encourage people to go to my website and pull up interviews or pull up radio programs and you know um, podcasts and listen to them in the car <laughs> when you've got your child. <laughs> Oh, that's very sneaky. (laughs) Yeah, and I swear that part of the reason I wrote this book was so that I could, um, you know, bring my own daughter to interviews that I do or to to, um, readings, um, you know, when the book first came out, and um, it sort of allowed her to hear all the things I wanted to tell her without having to um, (laughs) say it directly. And it did, I mean, obviously it's opened up huge doors, you know, in our own conversation over the years, but, um, but... yeah, because I think when you t- when you when uh, the reason I advise that um, is when it comes in through sort of a third party source like that, and um, you're talking about issues of oral sex, and you're talking about issues of intercourse, and all of these things that that I often talk about in interviews, um, it's a really easy jump to say, hey, you know, what's going on in your world? Is that going on with your friends? What do you think about that? What do you think she's right? Do you think she's wrong? You know, so there's a way that I thought that the that the book itself and, and interviews that I did could ask, act as a jumping off point for um, parents who's, who, are, who are entering this conversation with teenagers and for teenagers themselves. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the things that's been really gratifying to me is that the book really has taken off among girls, um, among high school girls in particular. I think college girls as well, but I hear from so many high school girls who are reading the book um, that it, it really makes me happy. Oh, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know, the last chapter in, in your book is, uh, what if we told them the truth, which right. is you know, what you've done in this book. Um, and it really takes us beyond that classical uh, sex ed class where, you know, you learn about the ovaries and the fallopian tubes and periods and condoms, etc. Yeah. And, you know, you kind of think, okay, I've told them that, you know, my job's I done. I know, that's what I would have thought. And it was interesting to me to really have my eyes opened about what real sex education is, which is about relationships, which is about personal choices, which is, um, you know, frankly, discussing pornography and its impact, which is huge on young people right now. 
uh, and discussing, you know, not just making sex into intercourse in this race to a goal, and not just talking about condom use, all of that. You know, what we think of as comprehensive sexual, uh, sex education is very, very narrow, and that's already, you know, so controversial. So one of the things I did was look at the... Um, ways uh, it was that sex had worked in other countries, and I particularly looked at Holland, and there was a study that um, looked at 400 uh, randomly chosen girls from two demographically similar colleges, in one in Holland and one here, that were talking about their early sexual experiences. And in every respect, whether it was more positive uh, outcomes like, you know, knowing your partner very well, being able to talk to your partner, um, preparing for the experience, enjoying the experience, or negative, fewer negative outcomes like pregnancy and disease, the Dutch were way ahead. And when they did one-on-one interviews, they found that the girls um, credited their parents, teachers, and doctors from talking to them at a very young age about sex, pleasure, and the importance of mutual trust in their relationships. And what really struck me was the difference between um, the parents. And it wasn't that American parents were less comfortable talking about sex, but we framed all those discussions in terms of risk and danger. And the Dutch talk about balancing responsibility and joy. And as a parent myself, that really hit me because, like you said, I am quite sure that had I not delved into this research and, and done this book, that I would have told my own daughter about contraception, about disease protection, and, you know, because I'm very modern, I would have talked about sexual consent, and I would have thought I did a good job. And I realize now that that is really only about, you know, a quarter of the conversation that we need to have. Yeah, and I think it's we... It's evident in your book and, and from you, the research you did and, and especially around the work in Holland, that was quite outstanding when I read that. But teens really need grown-ups. They do. And we think, you know, it's, what, another thing that struck me in the difference between um, the Dutch and Americans was a difference in the perception of um, teenage development. And so we think of teenagers as um, developing, you know, independently from the family and that there's a point where they create a rift and that they, it forces them to sort of lie about their behavior to us and to be kind of two people, especially girls. So they're one you know, good daughter at home and then they're another person in the world. And I saw that very much in the girls that I interviewed in the sense that they were, if I had met them and was talking to them about their um, educational goals, their professional aspirations, their extracurricular activities, I mean, these girls were dynamos. And then we would start talking about their personal lives, and it was like they were a totally different person. And I still will walk into classrooms or schools and think, oh, well, these girls are completely different. They won't even know what I'm talking about. At, they're all, they always become a different people once we start talking. And so that was really interesting to me. And in Holland, they have this word that I can't pronounce. It's something like, <laughs> you know, um, and it, it means cozy togetherness. Mm-hmm. And it's this idea that... Um, children are supposed to, teenagers are supposed to develop uh, interdependently within the family. And all of these things like sex, alcohol, all the things that we sort of, you know, pretend aren't happening are openly discussed. 
And so there, there was, I was reading um, the Amy Shallot's book, Not Under My Roof, and she talks about a Dutch mom that, that the, the daughter says, well, of course, my mother was the first person I wanted to tell after I had intercourse for the first time. And I came home, and she was at the kitchen table with her friend, and they said, oh, great, did you have a good time? Did you have an orgasm? Did he? I tried to imagine American parents having that conversation with their children, and I just, it was hysterical. It's hard to imagine. Very hard to imagine. You know, this, this, um, this idea, you know, of secrecy that kids have to have. And, you know, you also explored this across um, gender preference, um, lesbian women, um, women who identify neither as, uh, as neither gender. And I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about, the, you know, what you found in the experience of, of lesbian women, um, that, because it, it's a different thing. It was really different. So among, so let me just back up for a second to say that among straight women, and this is across the board, it's not just in the teenage years, but, you know, with girls, they were, the, the, that what research has found is that young women, well, women in general, but this was done on college women, are more, um, are more likely than young men to measure their own sexual satisfaction by their partner's pleasure. So in a straight couple, they'd say, if he had an orgasm, you know, then I'm happy. Mm. And young men are more likely to measure their satisfaction by their own pleasure. So they'll say... That's a problem. I was happy. So <laughs> girls' pleasure and orgasm are secondary at best in, in heterosexual encounters, in, um, certainly in the teen years and the college years. And girls would talk about that. But that focus on the partner's pleasure um, remains when they're in a same-sex pairing. And so the orgasm gap that you see in heterosexual couples disappears. Hmm. And girls actually climax in same-sex relationships at the same rate as boys. And what gay and bisexual girls would tell me was that they felt freed when they were in same-sex encounters to get off the script and to find a sexual encounter that works for them. And they also really, you know, helped me question the idea of virginity as defined by first intercourse. Because obviously, you know, a gay girl could have 500 partners and not have had heterosexual intercourse. And then, you know, I asked one girl, how did you know that you weren't a virgin anymore? And she sort of laughed and said, you know, I wasn't sure myself. And we had this whole discussion, and she decided she wasn't a virgin anymore when she'd had her first orgasm with a partner. Mm. And I was so blown away. But I mean, I thought, what if just for a minute we thought that was the definition? Mm. You know, how that would change? Because we, young people learn from the media you know, from one another, that sex is a race to a goal and that the only thing that counts is intercourse, which means that all these other behaviors that they're engaged in, you know, are not sex and that, therefore, they're not subject to the same rules, the same respect, the same um, compassion for your partner, uh, the same rules around consent, when, in truth, they should learn that sex is a pool of experiences that's about attraction and arousal and desire and touch and giving and receiving pleasure and yes you know orgasm but you know but but a whole range of things because what i always say when i talk to young people is who's really the more sexually experienced person because they're all obsessed obsessed with this thing they call experience you know is it the person who's made out with a partner for three hours and you know kissed and experimented with erotic tension and communication and sensuality or is it the person who gets drunk at a party and hooks up with a random in order to you know cash in their v-card before they get to college wow yeah this you bring up the alcohol issue 
which is a huge, uh, huge. scary issue, especially for parents of teenagers, both girls and boys, because uh-huh. so much um, harm comes to both boys and girls when they're drunk. And yes, of course, beyond sexual issues. Yeah, yeah. beyond sexual issues. But this what whole. What we know statistically is that it's not that there's more kids that drink than in the past, but that they, that the ones who drink drink much more. Mm. They, they binge at much higher levels and more often than kids in the past. And what so you also... That's s- where the real... You know, I don't know that, you know, it would be so such a big... I, you know, I don't... If, if, an, if a kid had a glass of wine, you know, but when they have six or nine, you know, this is, a, this is an issue. And, and so the binge drinking um, is, is a huge thing among high school and college kids and and when they're in a culture that you know we call the hookup culture right now which is you know obviously casual sex has always existed but the idea that sex should proceed or I'm sorry intimacy should should proceed rather than arise from a relationship so that you know sexual contact comes first and then you see if you like each other um, that that's normalized is what has changed as, a, as opposed to casual sex being sort of the exception and the relationship being more the rule Mm. Um, and if you want to have sex, a sexual encounter with somebody that you don't really know, alcohol becomes not just like lubrication, it becomes essential. And, and uh, you know, you, because what, what Lisa Wade, who's a sociologist at Occidental, says is that it creates a compulsory carelessness necessary to engage in a hookup. Yeah, and they're much more subject to to rape or date rape or um well what happens i mean it was really interesting to me because i I didn't want the book to be the sexual assault discussion the the new open you know the 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 advocacy um sort of burst forward as i was beginning the book and i did not actually start thinking i want to write about assault i wanted to write about um how girls viewed desire how they viewed pleasure how they viewed consensual sex but both because of what was going on in the culture at large, and because of what the girls told me, I certainly couldn't ignore um, assault and more than assault in some ways, really intense coercion um, in their relationships. And so, um, it, and and it's really tempting, I think, to focus our conversation around about alcohol on girls. You know, on, you know, don't drink and don't drink that much. And and certainly. We need to talk to girls, you know, to all kids about not drinking that much, but to girls about the unique impact of alcohol on the female body, which is different than on the male body. We can't drink as much, even if we weigh the same, even if we're as big, you know, drink for drink, we get drunker, and and we get drunker faster. And so all of that is important, and understanding judgment and all that. But what's also important is to talk to boys, because what we know is that um, alcohol impairs boys' judgment. It makes them... Uh, more likely to engage in behavior that they wouldn't be engage in if they were straight, to be more aggressive, and when they do assault, to be more aggressive in those assaults. And it makes them less likely to step in as bystanders than they would be if they were sober. So it's not really good enough to just focus on girls. And, you know, as, as advo- rape advocates, college rape advocates will tell you all the time, um, anti-rape advocates, uh, would will tell you that... Um, the only thing that 100% of rapes have in common is a rapist. So we really have to shift our messaging um, at least equally to boys. Right. So again, it comes back to how 
how can the grown-ups help in, in a climate, whether it be in a school or um, at home or in conversation? Um, where's the hope? Well, you know, as I said, I think that this idea of balancing responsibility and joy is really important. Um, I think, you know, ironically, our president um, has offered us an opportunity to talk to issues of assault and about assault and coercion with our kids um, by his own um, behavior. Unfortunately, he has given permission and legitimized that behavior, but he's also allowed those of us who um, object to that and don't want to raise children to think that that's acceptable behavior, uh, to have really open discussions about our values and about um, consent and about reciprocity, reciprocity and about coercion. And also, you know, in the education that I witnessed, and I, you know, I've, I followed um, one teacher in particular uh, named Karis Dennison, who lives in Marin. Um, she's a national consultant on sex education. And she, um, and sitting in one of her classes, they were talking about um, the baseball metaphor for sex. You know the one that we all learned. Right. Running the bases, you're going to. <laughs> and the and one young man um, raised his hand and he said, "You know, 